Welcome, my name is Alan. I'm the youth pastor here. So glad you've decided to join us. The reason why all of us are here is because we love each other, but we also love God. And so we love studying the Bible. We've been going through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, verse by verse, and we're in Daniel chapter 9 tonight. But it just so happens that it is a very Christmassy message, okay? So Daniel chapter 9, if you're taking notes, I've titled this message... One week left. I really wish it was one week left till Christmas because that would fit perfectly, but it's not. So one week left. That is the title of the message. Daniel chapter 9, why don't you flip over there. If you're there, say there. If you're not there, say wait. Daniel chapter 9. Do you ever look at a work of art, be it a statue, a painting, and you wonder, what does it mean? Anyone ever see the, the painting that got sold? It was a Da Vinci painting, I think it was, of Jesus, right? And it's like Jesus kind of going like this, like he's shooting like a lightning beam out of his eyes or something. Anyone see this? And it sold for like hundred, it was like the most expensive painting. I don't know how, what the number was. I think it was $450 million dollars. Something crazy like that. You ever look at those things and you just wonder, what does it mean? I think increasingly we're getting to that place with Christmas. Because you know the cliche, right? Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Like you grow up hearing that if you're a Christian and you grow up in church or whatever. But I think that's like a new thing. I don't think a lot of people outside of the church building really hear that anymore. And really not really sure what Jesus did and there's the whole baby thing of the donkeys and then there's like people dressed up. But think about this. Most people probably get their theology from Christmas songs. So if the most popular songs have nothing to do with Jesus, they probably don't even know why we have a Christmas. I'd imagine, besides the whole Santa thing. Which, by the way, if you rearrange the, the letters, it spells out Satan. Did you know that? Conspiracy. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Santa is apparently like, like saint, and it's just kind of, it's like Spanish, probably. I'm going to stick to what I know and not talk about things I have no idea what I'm talking about. So listen, Jesus is the reason for this season. We believe that. That's why we've gathered here to celebrate the fact that Jesus came into the world. And therefore, that means that there's hope for humanity. Because here's, here's what I've known to be true, and you've probably seen this as well. That Christmas can actually be a very painful time for many people. Isn't it true? Like, some of you get, get that. And listen, that's because I know you, and I know some people in this room, that Christmas is like a very difficult time. Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a family member that you can't be with. Maybe it's uh, families that have been divided. It can be a very painful time, actually, the holidays. And it's supposed to be a time of joy. And what we're going to discuss tonight is, listen, no matter the pain that you go through, no matter what's happening in your life, that it's true that Jesus Christ has come to bring us joy, joy to the world. He is the hope of the universe. He is the hope for, of humanity, the hope for every single person here. And I think as we explore Daniel chapter 9, we're going to see that as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. We'll pray. And then we'll go into the teaching. At the end of the teaching, I'm going to give an invitation 
for those of you that are not believers in Jesus, I'm going to challenge you because I'm going to give you an invitation at the end of this message to invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Make him the Lord of your life. So when that time comes, I want you to be thinking about throughout this message, who is Jesus to me? Do I believe in God? Do I know where I'm going when I die? Hard questions, right? But if there's any time to think about it, it's now when you're seeing the pain and hurt and suffering going on in the world. But let's read Daniel chapter 9 and we'll pray. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he, being God, would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those afar, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To our Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord of our Lord our God to walk in his ways, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept this disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he, and he does, though he, we have not obeyed his voice. And lastly, verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we explore Daniel's prayer unto you from a long time ago, that we would have the same heart, that we would look inside of ourselves and ask ourselves, are we doing everything that you ask us to do so that we can leave, lead a life that not only pleases you, but is a blessing to others? So we pray, Lord, around this Christmas season that we remember that we are, it is better to give than to receive. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given yourself to us so that we can receive eternal life. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Here's the big lie of our culture. The big lie of our culture is that there are no, there, there are a such thing, I should say, as victimless crimes. This is what the world teaches us, that there are things that you do that only affect you and it doesn't affect anybody else. So why even worry about it? Things that maybe everybody does. So why is it? It's not that big of a deal. I think one of the, the sins 
that goes under the radar the most, that affects the most lives without people realizing it, is one that many people are familiar with, unfortunately, and that's pornography. That is, I think, for our generation, the sin that so many are plagued with, many in this room, many outside of this, this room, many people are plagued with, and we are under the deception that there are no other people affected by this crime, by this sin. People think that, well, it's, it's only me, it's only something I'm watching. But listen, if you are consuming it, that means that there's also demand. And therefore, people are forced to produce these things. And listen, it's not like people want to get into these things. Many people, through sex trafficking, through different kinds of abuse, harm, hurt in their lives, if you actually sat down with these people and you heard their stories, I'm sure that you would hear many, many difficult situations. Many people don't even realize this, but our church actually puts on a, an outreach to many people that work in, in these situations. And through that outreach, you hear broken families, hurt stories where people have been abused all their lives and they, they are just trying to make ends meet. And because of that, ladies in our fellowship have actually reached out to these ladies to show them that there's hope only found in Jesus. But listen, this is one of those things that we could be completely fooled, completely fooled into thinking that I am the only one affected and therefore it doesn't really matter. But listen, this is something that we have to realize that because of the lies of our culture, we are constantly thinking about ourselves and we're not thinking about others, which leads to more and more sin, hurt, and abuse in the world. Think about it. It's not a coincidence, I think, that you listen to filthy music, and I'm not just saying, like, don't listen to music, whatever. Like, you can listen to music. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that you're listening to music that is degrading women, that music that talks about them like objects, and then you're seeing people actually objectifying women. I don't think that's crazy to suggest that when you're listening to lyrics all the time about jumping from one relationship to another, sleeping with a person for a night, whatever feels good, I don't think it's that crazy to say maybe that's having an effect on the way that people act. Maybe it's even causing people to turn to things like pornography in the first place. So you're looking at the culture and ask, why is this even happening? And that's because of two lies, I think. Two lies, two maxims, two sayings, Two things of our culture that's always perpetrated. It's number one, you should pursue your own happiness. Whatever makes you feel happy, you should do that. But then the second one, which is, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. This is what everyone generally believes in our culture. Not talking about Christians, I'm just saying the average secular person believes you should do whatever makes you feel good as long as you don't hurt anybody else. I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? Like if you're... Even a Christian, you, you listen to that and say, that sounds like a great moral way to live your life. But then let me ask you this question. And most of your friends, I can guarantee, have never thought about this. Now, when you have those two things, first one is pursue your own happiness. And number two is don't hurt anybody else. What do you do when those two things are in conflict? Which one do you listen to? Which one takes priority? So if it's pursuing my own happiness, but I don't want to hurt anybody else, but wait a minute, what if... I have really sensitive people around me. Well, they should just get over it. Maybe, yeah, I mean, come on. Like, you can't be that sensitive. Well, then that makes you the person who chooses how much hurt a person is allowed to endure for your own personal happiness. Isn't that kind of selfish? I mean, you can I just even look at our nation, right? Like, the fact that some people succeed means that other people lose. 
Imagine a world in which you're like, well, because I don't want to hurt anybody else, I'm not going to win any games. No basketball games, not going to get any trophies. I'm not going to win any whatever. I'm not going to make any money because other people might be offended. They, they might be hurt. I'm not going to apply for jobs because I'm taking a job that somebody else could have taken. I want to hurt them. I want to hurt their feelings. That obviously doesn't work unless you become a monk, in which case you just, uh, Buddhism teaches you that you shouldn't have any desires, which is funny because then you would desire not to have any desires. But let's say that you could do such a thing and move away from everybody else and you're in the middle of nowhere. Now you've had no effect on the world and now you can't pursue your own happiness. Huh. Well, I guess in Buddhism, happiness is like a bad thing anyway. So then let's say that you just pursue your own happiness. Forget everybody else. I'm just going to do whatever makes me feel happy. I don't care who gets hurt. Well, that leads to every literal sin on the planet. Everyone. Greed. Like the fact that people betray their families because it's all about my personal happiness, my individual success. So who cares if people get hurt along the way as long as I do what makes me feel happy? Is it any wonder that people jump from relationship to relationship? This person cheats on that person because in the moment, it felt right. Is it, is it like strange to suggest that maybe when people are flirting with somebody else, even while being in a relationship, it's because they're thinking about themselves and not other people? Right? This is what our culture teaches us. And I don't think it's any wonder that it's so contradictory that it leads to people being hurt in the process. And this is not what the Bible teaches the Bible teaches that we all naturally are selfish people, and therefore, here's a better way. Instead of pursuing, pursuing your own happiness, instead of avoiding other people's hurt, the third way is this. Actually pursue God's happiness and other people's happiness. Huh. That's really interesting, isn't it? it said, the, uh, Jesus said it this way. He said, you can summarize all the laws in the Bible in this. Love God and love other people. And love even your enemies. Now, if you're doing that, you're obviously not hurting anybody, right? And what you find is Jesus' words are true. It is better to give than to receive. And even unbelievers know this. People that aren't Christian, they know this. That when they're serving at a soup kitchen, they decide to do something selfless. They feel like it's right. They feel good about themselves. Now, there's an atheist named Bertrand Russell. In his book, History of Western Philosophy, he wrote this. He's examining all these different... Uh, uh, moralities, people's versions of like how you should live your life and whatever. And he says, Christians, I think, are, th are the closest because they say love your enemies. But here's the thing. I think it's way too hard to actually live that out. So we can't do that. So they have to settle for something else. Isn't that interesting? Like even the worst atheists can, can admit that it is probably a good thing to love your enemies. However, how in the world do you do that? When someone stabs you in the back, when someone betrays you, when someone cheats on you, how do you take the person that is against you and choose to love him? Well, this is how it's possible because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. While we were the enemies of Jesus Christ, he sacrificed himself completely. He died on the cross so you and I would be forgiven of our sin, our transgression. Here's your first point for this evening, and it's important to write, write it down that we have all contributed to the world's curse. All of us have contributed to the world's curse. I think it's easy to see. There are some sins, there are some things that you and I do that you know that you feel guilty inside. You want to make it right. The times that you gossiped about your friend, you're like, why did I say that? That was stupid. The time that you lash out in anger at the person that you love, and you're like, man, like, why did I say such a harmful thing? 
You know when you're going back and forth and then you suddenly have a thought where you're like, I could, I could kind of have this comeback and throw that out at them, and you do, and you know it, you just went way too far. And you do that. You can't take it back. You have this guilt inside. How am I going to be forgiven for the hurt that I cause other people? Well, we have all contributed to this thing called sin, and that is what brought about this curse in the world. Look at verse 11 of Daniel chapter 9 once again. This is what Daniel recognized. He said, Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law, O God, and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, a servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Now, what's interesting about this, let's, let's get some background. Daniel, remember, is a prophet, but he was in the midst of the Babylonian captivity. The people called the Babylonians took over Israel and they're a world empire, and Daniel was able to serve to King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Belteshazzar, and also this guy, King Darius. So he's having all these visions, he's having all these dreams, and he's actually able to have some influence on other people. And so what Daniel is doing, and it says this right in the beginning, we read in the, in, um, before we prayed, Daniel is looking at the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. And in the book of Jeremiah, it is prophesied that Jerusalem is going to be demolished. And so Daniel's looking at that. He's doing the math, and he's like, oh my goodness. In three years, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So Daniel's panicking, and he knows this. He's about 80 years old at this point. We first learned about him in chapter one when he was about a teenager. Now he's 80 years old, and he's, he's sweating. He's, he's anxious because he knows what's going to happen in three years. But what's really interesting is he owns it. Isn't it true that you, thus far in the book of Daniel, we haven't seen any recorded sin? And how does he address it? He actually says in verse 3, he says, or verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. He still repented identifying with the people of Israel's sin. And how did he do it? He fasted. He kept himself from food. He put on sackcloth, which is basically like a really like uncomfortable blanket that's like all just, it's, it's meant for mourning. It's kind of like a long story, but Jewish people, they would lament and they would mourn and they put on sackcloth to show that they, they, they just didn't want to be comforted by anything. So he put on sackcloth, ashes, he prayed, and he confessed as if it was his own sin. What did he repent of? Verse 10 shows us that he, he noticed that they had not been obeying or walking in God's ways. And in verse 13, he says, they haven't even prayed repentance or to gain instruction from the Lord. So Daniel owned the sin as if it was his own sin because he knew that he is not sinless and he contributes to this thing called suffering. And that is what has brought upon this curse in the world. So what happens? Verse 14, Read along with me. Therefore, the Lord has kept this, the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. So God has chosen to bring about disaster and punishment. And he is justified and righteous in doing it because we are wicked people. Now, I, it's kind of hard for us to understand that concept at first. Because you're thinking, wait a minute, what? And you have these visions of like Zeus or something with a lightning bolt striking down people he doesn't like. 
But all of us know what it's like to be upset with somebody who's a genuinely wicked and evil person. Nobody feels bad that Hitler is, is a person that should be judged, right? No one feels bad like if we caught him and he was able to be put on trial. No one would be like, you know what, you should just let him go free. It wasn't that bad. There are some, at least some wicked people in this world that, you know, if somebody beats up your little brother or sister at school, you want to go and beat him up too, right? That's something natural within us. So why is it when God, who is the ultimate judge, who is all good, looks at evil and wants to punish it, that we're like, oh, hold on. How, how do I know you're going to do a good job? He created us, and he gave us a sense of justice, right? He knows what he's doing. But when God says, listen, you guys are all part of the problem. You have all made mistakes. Then we realize that we, too, are guilty. So what does Daniel do? Read verse 16. This is what he does. He knows three years Jerusalem is going to be completely demolished. And he says, oh, Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant in supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine in your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which has been called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Okay, hold on for a second. What did Daniel just do? He read a prophecy where God says, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem and then Daniel prays that it doesn't happen. Isn't that really weird? A prophet in the Bible prays that God's prophecies aren't fulfilled. That's what it looks like to me. He prays against the curse. So why would he do that? If it's all set in stone, and if it's all set in stone, then why in the world would he try to pray against it? Why would he say like, hey, listen, I know you already said it, but I, I know you're the unchanging God. You don't change your mind, whatever, but I'm going to pray anyway and see what? See, he didn't think about that. He just knew what he was supposed to do. And though God had decreed what would happen, Daniel still prayed. Maybe you're here tonight and you're conscious of the evil that you've done. You're conscious of your sin, your guilt, and you're thinking, it's too late for me. God can't forgive me. I've gone too far with my girlfriend, my boyfriend. I've gone too far doing what I'm doing. I might as well keep going because it's too late for me to turn around. But listen, this is our second point for the evening. Our curse is not beyond God's cure. The things that we have incurred upon ourselves are never beyond God's healing hand to redeem. And this is why Daniel prays, and he says this, verse 18, the last half. He says, we're going to present our supplications, our requests, before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. If we only knew how merciful and how loving God was, we would run to his throne a lot faster. Think about it this way. When you're in trouble and you've known, you know you've done something terrible and like maybe it was at school and you know you're, you have to tell your parents, you like avoid that conversation as much as possible. Why? Like let's say that you got terrible grades, you failed all your classes or you did something and principal called you in the office, whatever. You got in a lot of trouble. You don't want your parents to find out why. 
because you're afraid the wrath of your parents is going to be poured out on you. But listen, if you put your faith in Jesus, you can come boldly to the throne of grace, knowing that you'll receive help. You're going to receive exactly what you need, which is love. That God, when he punishes, it's never because he doesn't like you. It's because he loves you and he wants you to see his great love. So coming to God, knowing that he's full of mercy, he's quick to forgive. He doesn't want to punish. But if people would just turn from their sins, turn from their wicked ways, then he would have the opportunity to do that. So summarizing verses 20 through 23, this is what happens. Gabriel, the angel, swiftly goes up to Daniel. So apparently the day goes on and Daniel's like all stressed out. He's praying, he's fasting, he's doing everything he can. And then Gabriel comes over to him and says, hey, I got a message from the Lord, because that's what angels are. We don't turn into angels, by the way, like red herring. But So we don't turn into angels. Angels are messengers of God sent to us to help us, but we're like human beings. So the angel Gabriel goes up to him and says, hey, listen, here's what God says. And this is what he says in verse 24. It's not going to make any sense. And then I'll explain what it means, okay? Because you might be like, this is the least comforting thing I think I've ever read in the Bible. Seventy weeks are determined for your people in your holy city. You're like, I don't know what that means. I'll explain. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall even in tro troublesome times. And after sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Okay, what in the world does that mean? Welcome to Prophecy 101. Really exciting. So if you haven't been tracking with us, it's important to know prophecy is unique to the Bible. Open up any other religious book and ask them, or ask, I guess you can ask the Quran too. It's not going to talk back. But look at any other religious book and ask other religious leaders, where the prophecies are, and you're not going to find anything like the Bible. How do I know that? Because the Bible is, is God's word, number one, but God puts prophecy as his signature to show you that's him. Because only God knows the future from the beginning. Only he can tell you things before it happens. Not even Satan can do that. Only God has foreknowledge, knowledge of an event before it happens. And so, because of this, what we see here is that he says 70 weeks, and when it uses that word weeks, it's actually a poor word. It just, it's heptads, actually. So what that means is sevens. So 77, so 77 periods of years, which means 490 years. 70 times 7, okay? So you got to just kind of track with me for a second. He says, in 490 years, all sin will be put to an end to. That's the comments he can have. It's not that Jerusalem is going to be spared, but listen— it's going to be rebuilt, actually. Though it's temporarily going to be destroyed, it's going to be rebuilt. And in 490 years, it's going to, all this process is going to take place so that no, uh, there won't be sin anymore. That's just kind of like what the promise is. Now, knowing that, he starts giving a very specific command. So he gives the faraway command. All sin will be vanquished within this period of 490 years. But... Just so you know, here is the near prophecy, and what he says is, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 483 years if you can do math. 
I'm very bad at math, so I had to write it down. So 483 years, which means that the last seven years are like not there, okay? Now, interestingly enough, since this has already happened, we know exactly when the command was given forth to rebuild Jerusalem. Happened in the book of Nehemiah. King Artaxerxes, not a Jew, okay? This guy said, yeah, Nehemiah, go ahead and rebuild Jerusalem. That was 444 B.C. Now, if you're really good at math, you can do all the calculations. What you do is you go 483 years, and you have to factor in the leap years and Babylonian calendar, all that stuff. What do you wind up with? 33 A.D. Huh. Did anything significant happen in 33 A.D.? Well, Jesus, about 30 years old, is walking down, and people are proclaiming Hosanna on his triumphal entry. Why? Think about this. Why were people proclaiming Hosanna? Because everybody knew that that was the day of the prophecy that was supposed to be fulfilled, that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is supposed to come. So Jesus comes riding in on a donkey because everyone was expecting him to come on in, on a horse, on a in battle array, in armor, and he doesn't. He comes on a donkey because he came to save the world, not condemn the world. This is the good news of Jesus, that he comes uh, as, as a humble servant to be able to reach you and I. So, really interesting. And this is why, actually, Luke records, I'm going to read the verse. Luke records in chapter 19, verse 39, some of the Pharisees called out to the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Actually, when he's coming down on the triumphal entry, and he said, he said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So everybody knows that verse, right? We sing that song, like even the rocks will cry out, whatever. The reason why he said that is because prophecy has to be fulfilled. If no one proclaimed Hosanna, even inanimate objects would find a way to do it because God's word will stand. So that's just like a little cool little factoid there for you Bible geeks, a little bit deeper. But here's the thing. Daniel is terrified because he recognizes his sin, not just his own personal sin, but the sin of the nation. He prays repentance, and here's the good news. This is your last point for the evening. That Jesus became a curse so that we could be blessed. Jesus became a curse so that we could be blessed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For as written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God can take any curse in your life, and turn it into a blessing. He did this with the Romans, how they were keeping the people of Israel in bondage, and through that, the gospel was able to spread through Roman roads. It's the same thing, that whatever we endure in this life, God can actually turn into good. So the sin that you accumulate for yourself, the things that are going on in your life, cannot actually put you beyond God's reach. But God is, is just waiting. He's seeking for people whose hearts are going to be loyal to him. He's actively looking for people to say, here am, here am I, Lord. I believe that you can forgive me. I know that you can save me. And this is what Christmas is all about, actually. That Jesus came not to the rich. He didn't come to kings. He came to nobody shepherds. And he came to a teenage girl named Mary and Joseph, nobodies. Like, we wouldn't know who they are otherwise. He came as a form of a baby, not a warrior. Not like a 
crazy like mighty angel. He came as a helpless baby to show that you could be the weakest person in the universe, the most unpopular, the weirdest person, the most broken person, and he came to fix every broken part in your life. That, my, my friends, is, is good news. So what is, where does that leave us? Verse 27, this is the last thing we're going to read in this chapter. And then I have one more verse, and we'll be done. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the week of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even the consummation which is determined be poured out on the desolate. Here's the warning. Because remember I said 490 years until sin is like completely vanquished? What happened to 490? We just talked about 483 years. There's actually one more week, one more period of seven years left before all of sin is vanquished. And that means there's a coming judgment. Just as in times past, God has judged his people, there is another coming judgment where God is going to judge the whole world for their sins. God has to. It can't be the case that God lets evil just run free forever. Eventually, God is going to have to put every single human being on trial. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. My question to you is this. What will you do with your guilt and God's son? What will you do with Christmas? Jesus has come into the world 2,000 years ago to die for your sins. And there will be a, a point in time where God is going to look you in the face and ask you, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? We're all going to have to wrestle with that question, whether you're a believer or not. You're going to have to ask yourself the question, who do I believe that Jesus Christ was? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ is offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time, apart for, from sin, for salvation. So here's my challenge, and this is what I'm closing with this evening. If you have not made that decision tonight to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, to recognize that you have sinned. Listen, this is, this is what humility looks like. It's to say, I recognize there are broken parts of my life, and unless God fixes me, I'm going to keep on hurting other people, and there will be holes that nothing else can fill. There will be holes like a need for love that only God can fill. And you can try going to other people to fill it, and you're always going to wind up empty. There's going to be a hole for success, and you're going to try to make yourself su successful but never able to obtain it unless God gives you true success. Unless you allow God to change your heart, you're never going to be able to forgive and love your enemies. You're going to walk in bitterness forever. You need God in your life. So I would challenge you, why wait? Why wait till you're like in college to be serious with the Lord? Why not make that decision today? We have leaders here that want to help you with that walk. We have friends here, people your own age. Listen, I'm not the only person that loves Jesus here. You guys love Jesus. And there are people that want to walk this life with you so that you can live the best life that you can possibly experience starting today and extending into eternity. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the reason for the season. And unless you came 2,000 years ago, we would not be here today celebrating. But thank you, Lord, that you chose in your great love to come down, that light has dawned 
to cast out every bit of darkness in our heart, to rid us of every bit of fear in our lives, to make Christmas a joyful holiday again, whether or not relationships are mended. So I pray for every broken person here, every person who's hurting, and every person who feels guilty before you, that you would wash them clean by your love. And with every head bowed, every eye closed, could I just ask in this moment of prayer, if everyone, whether you're Christian or not, could just kind of keep this in attitude of prayer for privacy and, and being able to just have your heart right before the Lord. I would ask you that if you want to make that decision for the first time while nobody else is looking, would you want to make that decision now? In your heart of hearts, would you want to stand before the Lord one day and say, I accepted what you did on the cross. I am not trusting in my own goodness to get into heaven because I recognize I've done some things that need forgiving. If you would like to make Jesus the Lord of your life tonight, would you raise your hand for a second so I could pray for you? Anybody else, quickly. As soon as I see your hand, you can put it right back down. Anybody else? Don't wait. If this is you, you know your heart's beating fast. You know that you have to make this decision. You're never going to regret it. Why not just say, all right, Lord, I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going like, to let you take control. I'm allow you to guide me. You're going to lead me because I know otherwise I'm just bound for, for torment. I'm bound for hurt, bound for pain. Anybody else? Quickly now. Awesome. Time is short. Jesus is coming back soon. All right, if that's you, why don't you just pray either out loud or in your heart of hearts. You just repeat after me, and God hears your prayers. Although this prayer itself isn't the thing that saves you. I want to make that clear. This is a way to express what's going on in your heart to the Lord, and I believe the Holy Spirit can take it from there. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I know that I'm a sinner, and I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross, and you rose again. So come into my life, be my Lord, be my Savior, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen.